Hello and welcome to Fundamentals, the podcast that explores pop culture one conversation at a time. I am your host, Harley. Joining me on this episode is a returning guest to the show. He is the co-host of Real Perspective and Let's Jaws for a Minute. It's MJ Smith. MJ was kind enough to come back onto the podcast and bring with him a truly fascinating topic, and that is, of course, biopics. Or is it biopics? I'm not really sure. Either way, it's a fascinating topic and one that offers so much, really, in the way of diversity. This conversation just goes all over the place, and I absolutely love it. MJ always has some really interesting analysts and insights on movies in general, but this as a genre of cinema truly is fascinating. And MJ brings all kinds of amazing movies and directors and themes to discuss throughout. This is one of those episodes where I really think there is something for everyone to enjoy. So without further ado, let's just get straight into it. This is Biopics with MJ Smith. Hello, MJ, and welcome back to the Fundamentals podcast. Hey, Harley, thank you for having me again. Oh, my pleasure, man. You've come to me with a fascinating topic uh, all about biopics. So yes, I guess to kick off with this, I have a question for you. I'd love to know, what was what was the first biopic you can remember seeing? Oh, um, that's interesting. Uh, the, you know, I have a pretty distinct memory of watching um, Great Balls of Fire, the Jerry Lewis biopic, where okay. Dennis... Dennis Quaid plays him um, as a kid on TV. So my dad was a musician and he loved movies about musicians. And so mm. I think it's an often maligned genre, okay. but I grew up watching so many of those movies with my dad that I still see like almost every music biopic that, <laughs> that comes out, even though they're all mm-hmm. exactly the same. Right. Um, there was something about that formula that really worked for my dad, but then he passed that on to me. So I see like all of them for better, like everything from the good, like walk the line to the Bohemian Rhapsodies of it all. So right. uh, yeah, Great Balls of Fire is the first one. And then shortly thereafter, I remember watching, I think it's called the Buddy Holly story where Gary mm. Busey plays Buddy Holly. <laughs> um, okay. Yep. And those are the first, those are the two earliest memories I have of seeing biopics. Wow. Okay. I know that, that straight away we find that there's a, a personal connection to this kind of style of movie straight away. And um, we can talk about all different types, but I think you're right. The, the music one is definitely one that, uh, to no surprise of anyone who's listened to this podcast for more than five minutes, will know that I'm always interested in when they come out. So I'm like, yeah. oh, music, film? Yes, please. Um, but yeah, something you just said caught my attention. So you mentioned that they all kind of follow the same sort of formula. How, how do you mean? Um, well, it's just usually like... Um guy who doesn't quite fit in in the mm-hmm. 1950s uh <laughs> learning how to do music from like old usually black bluesmen and mm. or the church they grew up in or grew up near which is often like once again a black gospel like baptist church mm. um so they grew up singing gospel music they have a dead sibling um 
that either in well in the case of elvis he died Mm -hmm. in birth his twin brother uh but like with Mm -hmm. johnny cash or ray um they saw their sibling die and then felt the need to kind of make up like to live a life big enough for the two of them they also have dad issues and then they come out with this sort of like new revolutionary sound that you know catches the world by storm but upsets the sort of like right-wing uh conservative-leaning um you know uh powers that be of the day but Mm -hmm. then they ultimately win those people over and um, you know, it's it's often framed around like their final concert or a big moment in their career um, mm-hmm. and then re- reflecting right before uh, they go on stage for that famous, you know, like Folsom Prison or mm. um, Live Aid for for Freddie Mercury, mm. um, stuff like that. So it's, it's usually like that's the formula for a biopic, uh, especially a music, a music <laughs> biopic. I can't believe I've not thought of that before, but you're absolutely right. (laughs) (laughs) That is most of them. (laughs) Yep. Incredible, man. I mean, (laughs) yeah. The thing about like the big moment, the big gig, and then the reflection, that I can definitely say I've noticed in every single one of them. Yeah. I've always felt like as a framing device, it, it kind of makes sense, right? Because it's it's that thing of, especially when a famous musician, it's like, yeah, we want to see them do the song, you know, or songs, plural, depending on how you know how well people know the back catalog yeah there's um uh i mean i'll, I'll probably reference this throughout but the movie mm-hmm. walk hard uh yeah is like the ultimate parody of the music biopic but one of my mm. favorite lines of that movie is <laughs> it's at the beginning when they're setting up that framing device of it's before a big gig that that dewey uh has mm. and the the you know the stage manager is like dewey you got to get on stage and his band his bandmate is like Dewey Cox has got to think about his entire life before he gets on this stage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've not yet seen that film. I really, really want to. It's one of those oh, I just haven't yeah. got around to it. But oh, yeah, you gotta like, especially sounds... if you're a music biopic fan, you've got to uh-huh. watch it. Like, yeah, and it, I feel like that movie really broke the music biopic for a long time because right. it, it it was the first, oddly enough, the first thing that really challenged that sort of formula and it mm. like showed a lot of people how samey all of these are so now when like mm. when these new music biopics come out it just plays like a serious version of walk hard and not in a good way right. i think bohemian rhapsody really suffered from that like it was already not that good of a movie but coming out mm. after walk hard it really like it really it pro- kind of prophetically shone mm. a light on the problems with that movie yeah, it, that's one that I got to admit. I think at first it kind of just glossed over me. I was kind mm-hmm. of like, "Oh yeah, it's just you know, it was pretty straightforward." I, I like a lot of the songs. I thought the performance, you know, the particularly Rami Malek was really solid, mm-hmm. and that was kind of as much as I thought about it. And then afterwards, I heard a lot of people bring out the exact points that you've just mentioned, and the more I sort of sat with it, I was like. Oh yeah, they're right. <laughs> like, yeah. Actually, it's, my, yeah. Yeah. My big problem with that movie is there's one scene in particular that I think is endemic of the entire film, which is when he's coming out mm. to, I don't remember his wife's name, but he's coming out to his wife at the time. And uh-huh. he says like, I think I'm bisexual. Mm. And she says, no, Freddie, you're gay. And he's just like, okay, I guess I'm gay. Like there's, they give him no yeah. autonomy to like decide anything about yeah. his sexuality. And it's like, well, wait yeah. a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> and I think further to that, it's something that someone else pointed out. And I think it's so true is that's also indicative of the fact that this movie has no conflict. 
You know, yeah. there's, there's and, I, and that's something that, again, I'm like, that's absolutely true. It's a good observation of, yeah, the fact that something like that would be an entire movie on its own. You know, somebody like mm. a, a musician struggling with their sexual identity in a time uh, when, you know, would have been difficult in society and stuff like that. Like, I think from what I've heard, the Elton John movie sort of tackles that a little bit and mm-hmm. some of the other personal issues that came with that. That's an entire movie, but this one kind of just glosses over that. Or there's the thing of if another, another big part of Queen's story, the fact that, their music was so out there and you know the whole yeah. like bohemian rhapsody being a single was such a big battle for them but in the movie it's just glossed over and there's there's so many beats like that where you're like if you actually took that one thing that you've just brought up and stretched it out and really mm-hmm. like honed in on focused on like what that meant for either freddie or that you know the band as a whole yeah that could be your whole movie and that could be a really interesting character study but instead, this film is just kind of like a hop, skip, and a jump over those things, just because it wants to get to the big, the big finale. And yeah, I'll, I'll say to anyone who's listening, I think, oh, I don't know about that. Go and listen to. There's a ton of like podcasts and documentaries out there about the life of Freddie Mercury and of Queen yeah. the band, and then come back to that movie, and you'll realize just how much of a disservice it did to that story, and yeah. how all of those things are really a problem. I mean, yeah, and I, th- I think that's 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 sort of a problem with just like if a band is so popular that mm. like there's so much information readily available about them and their history, a yeah. biopic really has its work cut out for it. Big time, um, yeah. because it's very easy to be like, well, that's not accurate. That's not accurate. That's not accurate. And I don't think that a movie has to be 100% accurate to someone's life and story to be a good representation of who they were as a person. But they get really big things wrong in that movie, such Mm. as, like, Freddie knowing he has AIDS going into Live Aid. He didn't. And also, he he kept Mm. it from the band until, like, 1989 or something. So Mm. he tells them right before they go to Live Aid, and it's like, well, wait a minute. That's, like, a huge thing like that's a big deal yeah and like they didn't know when he went to live aid that that was the case so yeah it, 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 that kind of stuff is real like it's kind of gross it feels yeah. like like it, and again it's know. glossed over isn't it it's not mm-hmm. like a, a serious discussion or like a weighty yeah. moment it's like two minutes later they're all big smiles on a stage like nothing's happened you're like that feels like again that feels like a whole movie that feels yeah. like something that could be discussed and dissected and what have you but but there you go i mean i don't want to focus too much on the negatives but i feel like yeah it's worth discussing these examples um and i guess to that to that end i'd love to know like what you think what you think it is then about these sort of biopics and if we're talking about musical biopics that's absolutely fine like what it is about them that has the appeal or like why they get made or sort of really what the point of them is then because as you say with so many people like queen like elvis is a really good example right of Mm -hmm. a recent one the stories are so well known. There's the iconography, the songs, the life is just out there in the public. So why yeah. bother making a movie about it? What do you yeah. sort of think? Um, I think it, I think it kind of depends on the goal of the filmmaker. Um, I think right. one, it's just history and historical movies tend to do well in general, right? Like mm-hmm. we still watch all these World War II movies that come out and True. we know what happened there spoiler um yeah right <laughs> so i think it just like it's it's a it's an easy digestible way to break up these like big complicated histories and i think also you know they're ultimately about celebrities for the most part right um sure and i, I think that like 
modern 20th and 21st century culture is the first culture ever to really deal with celebrity on a large scale. And we don't, mm. we don't, we still don't like evolutionarily or whatever, don't really know what to do with that. Like what box that kind of fits in. And sure. so I think that's a sort of a way of kind of making sense of that. And like, you know, so it, it can be meditations on fame. Um, it can mm. be um, meditations on objectification of people or like treating people as a commodity um which is what the new elvis movie does um mm. I, have you seen love and mercy uh no no okay love and mercy is an excellent music biopic and it's it's about brian wilson of the beach boys um, okay and it's set it's 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 got this really cool experimental uh structure where half of the movie takes place in the 80s and half of it takes place during the recording of pet sounds and um it it it's he's played by two different actors so john cusack plays him in the 80s and in the 80s is when he was under that conservatorship where he was like very drugged up by his manager and kind of like kept at bay and the manager was kind of like leeching off his royalties from the beach boys and then you know in the 60s he's played by paul dano and uh, Paul Dano plays essentially Brian Wilson at his like creative peak, right? Like Pet Sounds is widely considered one of the greatest rock albums ever made and produced and, and things like that. So it's really interesting. It just has this juxtaposition of like this guy at the peak of his career and then at the kind of almost lowest point of his career when he's essentially a burnout and having like w through no fault of his own, um, just through like these these manipulative powers behind him and having to overcome that conflict um, and sort of it kind of draws the line of like how that how like pet sounds through that era kind of paved the way to him mm. ending up in that situation and having to overcome it. Um, and right. so, it, it, it you know, that's a that, that yes, that happened to a very famous person, but that could happen to anyone. Right. Like, yeah. Yeah. It's something like to, to, you know, be, you know, not as good as you once were when you were younger and having to overcome that. Like, that's a very, I mean, we, we were talking off mic about Top Gun Maverick. That's kind of mm. the, the same story of that. Or sure. uh, a yeah. movie like Color of Money, which is about like an elderly mm. athlete, like a pool player, get, kind of finding his spot in this sort of mm. new world where nine ball has taken over for eight ball, his game that he used to play. So mm. I think that's a very like, it's a very easy way to use familiar iconography and people right most people are familiar with the beach boys most people are familiar with pet sounds to kind mm. of explore what it's like to overcome uh uh very like relatable circumstances essentially yeah yeah i you know, such a good way of putting it and i think you're right yeah i guess it's that choosing that narrative framing device for that person's life or you know and, and as you said earlier like often these people's lives are just so wild you know in terms yeah. of what they do and their and their, their careers span decades of and all sorts of different types of work that obviously you're not you can't just do a beat for beat you know documentary essentially because yeah. well you go and make a documentary if that's what you want to do <laughs> you know? yeah well, yeah and like the beach boys are you know they're an institution unto themselves right like right if if you look at these these bands who kind of glaringly do not have biopics about them they they sort of do and we can get into that but like uh -huh. There's never been a true proper Beatles bi biopic. There's never been a true, true proper mm. Rolling Stones biopic. There's never been a true mm. proper Bob Dylan biopic. And like, it's mm. because there's so, I mean, look at the careers all these people have had. Like they're, I mean, 
six, seven decades deep now. And yeah. like, what do you pick and choose to kind of figure out what to tell about those stories? I, yeah. I mean, at time of recording, you know, Sir Paul McCartney had just headlined Glastonbury. Like he's yeah. still going and it's like, yeah. yeah, if you started to make a movie about his life, for example, right now, where on earth would you begin? Like you said, yeah. and like, yeah, what, what do you fo- focus on? Which era, which point in his life? Like you said, there's, yeah, it's true. I guess, yeah. but but to and, that and then, sorry, yeah. I'm just curious. Like, yeah, what what was the what was it like for the Elvis movie then? Because I that strikes me as something that has to deal with the absolutely gargantuan amount of stuff that the guy did. I mean, you know, yeah. not just music, but his acting, Vegas, it's, mm-hmm. the different eras that he had in his career are just incredible. Yeah, so Elvis is a weird one. Um, Elvis has an even more experimental style than Love and Mercy. Um, okay, it's it's very it's very Baz Luhrmann. Uh, so mm-hmm. if 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 you know what you're getting into, like at this point in his career, you should know what you're getting into if you go see that movie. Um, it's, right, it's very frenetic. It's very like fast paced, and it's sort of re. It's sort of like the high level Cliff's Notes version of like the Elvis story, right? But and all the story really only spans about 20 years. So like 56 is when he blows up. 77 is when he dies. And mm. so um, it's still a lot, though. He did a lot of stuff in that period of time. Like he revolu. I mean, he, you know, he he essentially like the, the movie really focuses on the fact that he's the king of rock and roll. But he grew up in a lot of like um, black neighborhoods and black spaces and brought the music out of that to the white mainstream because, mm. you know, that was a, a period of America where, you know, uh, uh, black musicians, well, black people in general, but black musicians did not have the same opportunities afforded to them that white musicians did. So right. um, they really focus heavily on that and they frame Elvis. And I don't, I don't know much about Elvis, the man, Um they frame him as someone who was always very conscious of that. Um, sure. You know, like when he hits like a really mom- a moment in his career, he's like the most famous guy in the world and he has to clear his head. He goes back to the black blues club that he came up in and hangs mm. out with BB King and little Richard and right. Mahalia Jackson. And so he, you know, he, mm. he is framed as a champion of that. Right. And so it's, it's, that's part of the story, but it's also a story about abuse essentially the abuses he sent he's 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 uh experienced at the hands of colonel tom parker who's a major player in the elvis story Um, and the movie's actually told from tom parker's perspective so he narrates the entire film and uh Hmm. one of the things i liked about it is that the movie was like mean to me um like directly mean to me the audience member like (laughs) colonel tom parker over the course of the movie like blames you for killing Elvis because he, (laughs) he like, he says like you killed Elvis essentially like more than once because he's trying to like absolve himself because it was, I mean, it was, it was Tom Parker's manipulation and like essentially the same thing that happened to Brian Wilson. Brian Wilson was lucky enough to escape it while he still could. And Mm. they had the doctor, Dr. Nick who like kept, kept Elvis basically drugged to the point where he was incoherent and like just had to do whatever Tom Parker said in order to get by in his career and Mm. then made sure that he was surrounded by people who were draining him of his money. So he had to rely on Tom Parker. Um, So it's a story about abuse. It's a story about the birth of rock and roll and the, the sort of like 
the the tension between it being a kind of inherently black artistic art form but being brought to the mainstream audiences by a white performer mm. and just sort of the the implications of that and then a, a, with a dash of like lonely at the top kind of fame stuff like we we see him get more and more isolated the more famous he becomes just because like you know mm. it's you know it, it i don't know it's 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 both hard and easy i think to feel bad for famous people like if you think about the beatles at their height like no one was meant to be as famous as the beatles were right like (laughs) that was not supposed to happen to anybody or even like michael jackson right like if you look at how famous if you there's this there's this clip of michael jackson coming on stage at a concert in germany that's the craziest piece of like live music i've ever seen he's just standing there and the entire audience is going insane. Like I've mm. never seen even a Beatles clip like that. It's wild. Yeah. Um, and it's just like, that's not, that can't be good for you as a, like as a person mm. that can't be, that can't be good. And in the, in the, in the documentary eight days a week about the, the Beatles when they were touring, McCartney basically says as much. He's like, the only reason we didn't go insane and off ourselves is because we had each other. Like there were at least three mm. other people in the world who understood what it was like to be as famous as the Beatles. Yeah. Um, but uh, he was like, other than that, we all would have gone crazy. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's something I think we did talk about with the Beatles um, a while back and yeah, you're right. It's I've, I found that incredible. Like just watching the sort of footage that you get of them in a stadium and they can't even hear their own instruments, you know, because yeah. it's just of the deafening screams and it's like, you know, six months prior to that, they were just four guys in Liverpool playing in pubs, you know, and they were just yeah. just mates hanging out. And like you say, all of a sudden, like the entire world is quite literally screaming at them. And it's, yeah, what do you think about that on a very human level? Like put yourself in that position. You, you wouldn't know what to do with yourself. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah. I just think like, imagine doing that from this podcast, right? Like th- right. that to me, I say that out loud because it's to me, it's a stupid notion. I'm like, of course that would never happen. And right. that's probably how they felt. They're like, who cares? We're just writing songs. Like, what does it matter? And then all of a sudden, it's just everyone's freaking out. So, yeah, it's interesting then. I guess the, the Elvis film picks up on that. And the fact that, as you say, he was unfortunately on his own, I guess, in, in dealing yeah. with that. How does the movie handle all of that, do you think? Um, yeah, um, Austin Butler's really good in it. Um, he looks mm. a lot like him and he sounds exactly like him. It is wild hearing him, his his Elvis voice. Like, it's, it's right. Sounds exactly like him. And it's funny because I just rewatched um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood last week and he plays one of the Manson family. He plays Tex. Okay. Uh, he plays Tex in that movie. Um, if you guys aren't familiar with the Manson story, he's the guy who said, uh, I'm the devil and I'm here to do the devil's work uh, in that movie. Oh. He said it in real life too, but that's okay. that's the that's the the probably the, the defining moment of that character is. Yeah. Uh, so he plays Tex in that and he's just got this thick southern accent i don't know if he has it in real life but he channels elvis like really 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 well throughout Mm. the entire thing and then you know the movie is very frenetic and frantic and kinetic and has these like crazy Baz Luhrmann camera sweeps and it's Mm. set up as like the kitsch of vegas and the you know bright lights big city and Mm. how tom parker is the serial gambler who has Mm. a gambling addiction and like um, all this stuff but then towards the end of the movie it kind of slows down a lot because Elvis's career slows down a lot and mm. he's just kind of trapped in Vegas and so it kind of like it goes from this like the movie opens with this like the promise of Vegas and then it ends mm. with like Vegas essentially being this prison 
for Elvis. And so he's just like, he, wow. he even though he toured, um, he was only doing six weeks in Vegas every year. Um, mm. but, and then he would tour out, he would tour in between those, those residencies. We never see any footage. We see one montage of his touring footage from the first year he was in Vegas. After that, the rest of the movie happens in Las Vegas. And so it goes from this like whirlwind thing where like he's in Tupelo, Mississippi as a kid and he's learning about music and then he's in Texarkana and he's doing, you know, this circuit and he's on Sun Records and then he like tours with Tom Parker and then he, you know, he goes in the military and so he's in Germany for two years and he comes back and he goes to Hollywood and he makes all these movies and then he goes and does the 68 comeback special and we breeze through that and it's like the big like second coming of all this and then he plans this international tour that he never does that's one of the things i learned from the movie elvis never toured internationally which is bonkers to me really uh yeah yeah i think yeah i must have known that because like i have heard bits about his life story but that is that is really yeah that's quite surprising isn't it when you think well, about it's it because it's because tom or, or tom parker was mm. not a citizen of anywhere so oh. he was he was an immigrant from Holland, but he had renounced his uh, his Holland citizenship mm. and never got a green card in America. So he had he was technically a right. man without a country, but that would have made made him arrested if he went to any airport, essentially. Right. Um, so he couldn't go internationally. So Tom Parker, like he he that's what made him start to like at least in the narrative of the film. I don't know if yeah, I'm sure it was several other reasons that's what mm. made him start to get like um elvis drugged up and paranoid is he was yeah. he said it was a security risk to travel internationally like he he did this like he leans into the xenophobia of like oh people overseas are crazy they're not you know they're gonna come at you way more than people are over here in america like america's safe and you know mm. uh you know germany's not or whatever and so it's like well wait a minute he just spent two years in germany <laughs> you know like mm. in the military mm. so uh, it kind of goes through all that. And then once we hit Vegas, it's just like stays there after his first tour, after his first year in Vegas. And that's like the, where the movie kind of winds down into the, the end of, of kind of the end of his life. It doesn't quite go up to 77. I think it ends in like 73, 74. Um, right. But yeah, that's sort of like the overarching narrative. And that's like, it's a two hour and 40 minute movie. And that's still a lot of stuff to pack into a two hour and 40 minute movie. Hmm. I imagine the frenetic energy sort of helped them with the first hour or yeah. so just to kind of get that, that yeah, stuff out of the way. Yeah. And that's the thing, like, um, I don't want to get too film school about it, but if, mm. if you listen, there's, there's an episode of, um, let's draw a sermon at my, my other podcast mm-hmm. where I talk about the modes of montage that Sergei Eisenstein, who was like a, a Soviet filmmaker, uh, battleship Potemkin is probably his most famous picture. Um, you learn about it. If you go to film school, you'll learn all about this, but he basically developed four different modes of montage that like, uh, can help drive a narrative forward. And boy, howdy, if you want to, uh, (laughs) learn about the four modes of montage, like read about the four modes of montage and then watch Elvis and then read about the four modes of montage again. And that is a complete crash course in the modes of montage. It's, it's really kind of fascinating from that perspective, that, that, that sort of high level, like technical filmmaking that is going on uh, in, in the film. And that it really does help move the story along, but it also gets exhausting (laughs) Mm. Um, because it's so, you know, it's this big maximalist movie, which is what Baz Luhrmann does, right? Like if you've seen, 
Moulin Rouge, that that movie is also mm-hmm. really, really tiring. Um, yeah. <laughs> and and uh, Elvis is no different in that regard. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, I was wondering, because it, it looked just from the trailers, like, just really full on. But yeah, I guess to your point, it plays into the, the sort of narrative theme then of, of that particular mm-hmm. story they're trying to tell of the story of, like you say, the bright lights and in Vegas and sort of when I guess when you think of Vegas, I've I've never been personally, mm-hmm. but whenever I've seen it depicted in any form of media, it just seems like a lot. It seems like a barrage on the senses, and I think yeah, that's how it's designed. So it kind yeah. of makes sense that yeah, you would get somebody who has that kind of filming style and would put it together in such a way that I'd imagine it would it sort of puts you in the shoes of Elvis in that sense of like mm-hmm. feeling that just constant barrage of lights and sound and yeah everything else yeah definitely um it it really nails that that yeah that perspective of like it's elvis's Mm. story and like it it also features like a full-on unhinged performance from tom hanks like yeah i think your mileage may vary with what that performance is trying to it look uh, it looks wild and i kind of want to see it because i love tom hanks i usually feel like he's very safe with a lot of Mm -hmm. his roles where i like look i just saw a clip of that i was like oh this looks strange i kind of want to see this (laughs) yeah it's like his performance in the lady killers times a million like wow yeah it's a lot (laughs) and and Mm. he like i said he narrates it so you hear that goofy voice he has for two hours and 40 minutes (laughs) wow i also feel that's another thing that like biopics in general kind of offer to actors and stuff as well as the chance to Mm -hmm. step into these larger than life characters be it the lead role or be it supporting casts and sort of get i think for character actors in particular it must be a, a really exciting opportunity yeah, and I, I have you ever seen I'm Not There, the the Dylan biopic? Uh no, no, I haven't. Okay. okay. So it's it's not a very traditional biopic at all. It is maybe my favorite biopic. Um, I th- actually I think I've heard of this. Is this the one where it's like different actors playing yeah, different stages? So seven different people play Bob Dylan. I uh, yeah, I've heard this of this movie. And uh-huh. none of them are named Bob Dylan, which I think is great. So instead <laughs> right. of instead of being like Bob Dylan in the Greenwich Village area or uh, era or Dylan goes electric or Dylan yeah. in London or whatever, like, or the European tour, right. Mm-hmm. That, um, Oh God, what's the name of the, the Dylan doc that Panabaker made? Um, I have no idea. Is um, it, I'm, it's not no direction home. What's it called? Bob Dylan. Documentary uh don't look back don't look okay yeah no yeah. i've heard of that so like yeah. kate blanchett plays the don't look back era dylan and like christian bale plays the christian uh, uh i see what they did there um, <laughs> <laughs> just realized that christian bale plays like the 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 christian uh era of dylan because dylan made like three christian records in the early 70s right um, okay and so but he's like instead of being like bob dylan musician he's a preacher like he's literally like a baptist preacher right um, like heath ledger plays one of the bob dylans he plays the the blood on the tracks era bob dylan but once again he's not bob dylan musician he's just a guy going through a really tumultuous divorce um right and like richard gear plays the john wesley harding era bob dylan which is like his country music era like that's when he was doing like um uh, uh Nashville skyline and john wesley harding and like the the country music era he's mm. not a musician 
he's a cowboy. He's like, it's quite literally like takes place in the 1800s and he's like a cowboy, but it's representative of that era of Bob Dylan, the music. So that's huh. a, it's a really, really interesting yeah. uh, look at Dylan's life that like gets the point across. Like you never, mm. if you know about Dylan's like life and career, like I'm a big, big Bob Dylan fan, <laughs> if you can't tell. Yeah. And uh, if you know about those different eras and like those albums and what, like what he was doing there, you can look at that movie and point out like, Oh, that's the electric era. That's the Greenwich Village area era. This is the, you know, the John Wesley Harding era. And so mm. you're never confused about, uh, what era of Dylan you're watching, but it's such a different, you know, uh, 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 take on what a biopic can be. And like, I, yeah. I really love it. I'm due for a rewatch. I'm probably going to rewatch it this week now that I'm talking about it. Okay. I, that sounds fascinating actually. Yeah. It's like a completely different way of approaching. almost like a sort of art house kind of experimental yeah. way, but I imagine that's quite interesting a is a, just a, a filmmaking sort of study, but also B, I think, as a fan of Bob Dylan, because you don't really know what to expect next, right? Yeah. It's, you're not getting your standard fare. You're kind of like, oh, I have no idea what they're going to do in the next section of his yeah, life. Yeah, and I mean, that's kind of how Dylan is, you know? Like, you never, never right. know what he's going to do. Like, he's he's a very unpredictable type of performer and very enigmatic, so a traditional biopic would be just real kind of boring, I feel like, mm. um, for that, like, that style of guy, you know, like... I mean, hell, even the 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 Scorsese doc uh, that just came out, Rolling Thunder Review. That's mm. it's just a documentary about Bob Dylan talking about the Rolling Thunder Review tour. They just yeah, they just made a bunch of stuff up uh, about the tour that didn't happen. They interview a Ooh. photographer. They interview okay. a photographer who was mm. the tour photographer for the Rolling Thunder Review. Yeah, yeah. He wasn't there. He didn't exist. He's not a real guy. But they just yeah. sell you that this guy was the photographer for the whole tour. I'm not keen on that, especially in the documentary. I feel <laughs> like that's, you know, th there's artistic license you can get yeah. away with in a movie, right? Whereas a yeah. documentary is like, hold on a second. You're yeah. meant to be presenting facts and history here. Like, let's. Hmm. I, yeah, <laughs> I have, I have, uh, I have, I have a hot take on it, which it took me two times seeing the movie to get on board with it because I really didn't uh, yeah. like it the first time I saw it because I thought it was like, I thought it was kind of mean spirited. Like it felt like it was playing a prank on the mm. audience, mm. but the movie actually kind of telegraphs itself that way from the beginning. And I didn't pick up on that before. Uh, okay. like it, it, it does let you in on the joke, but it's really subtle. And you have to know that going in that that's what that part at the beginning is doing. Mm. Um, and okay. then also, I think the title is framed in a way where it's like, oh, I see. Like, it's very, very subtle, but it's I can totally see how that that very much tickles Bob Dylan. <laughs> um, so, like, it's called uh, Rolling Thunder Review, colon, a Bob Dylan story. So mm. I think that part, like the, the Bob Dylan story part is supposed to clear you in. I'm like, eh, it's part right. documentary. It's part like sure. fiction, but it's it's what it's about larger is like an America on the brink um, because it's just like the end of the hippie era. Cause it's 1975, early 1976 that it happened. And it's about America getting into its bicentennial, right? That's the 200th anniversary of the signing of the declaration of independence. Well, it's a much different country than 200 years before, but it's also a much different country than five years before or six mm. years before when like Dylan was on the top of the world. And now the hippie era is over Vietnam's mm. over the disco era is in full swing. We're getting ready to, you know, 
right into the cocaine 80s and like mm. um just kind of like where america was at like it was really in this big identity crisis right. around that time and so the the artifice of the documentary it kind of gives the documentary this identity crisis too that right. reflects the theme they're going for so i think it's pretty brilliantly executed but it's also like if you don't have the right like Mm. You don't have someone navigating you through that. You're going to be really upset by it. <laughs> <laughs> right. Fair enough. Fair enough. So I'm just wondering then, like, what what do you think are some of the, the best examples then of 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 biopics and in, in the sort of genre? Yeah, I think um, I think that for the very traditional, like, by the book formulaic um, mm. uh, biopic that we were talking about earlier, like guy in the '50s learns music in church, you know dead sibling daddy issues seen as a rebel wins those people over i think walk the line's probably the best um it's the whacking phoenix one yeah yep mm -hmm. yeah. johnny cash one uh yeah, could yeah. be the fact that i'm a huge johnny cash fan uh might be uh <laughs> adjusting <laughs> adjusting that bias there um hmm. but i think it's it's i think he's very good in it um he did all his own singing which you know he doesn't Fair sound play. he doesn't sound a lot like johnny cash but also who does who does. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's such an iconic <laughs> voice that like shout out mm. to him for even trying. <laughs> um, yeah, it's one of those, isn't it? It's like whenever you get, especially when it's a such a well-known vocalist and like, mm -hmm. yeah, that's mm, that's tricky. That's very tricky. It's one that I think cause I, not to kind of go back too far on it, but I feel, I feel like in Bohemian Rhapsody, they obviously got some dubbing and stuff in and, I yeah. don't blame them because I'm like, look, Rami Malek, again, it's problems I have with that film, whatever, as a performance, really solid. Mm -hmm. But to do that and then try and sing like Freddie yeah. Mercury, it's like, I don't think anyone can do that. I mean, you know, they've got Adam Lambert currently in the band and right. the guy's phenomenal, but it's taken him a long time to find someone who can get close. And even yeah. then he'll say, I've heard him say in interviews, like, yeah, I'm not trying to mimic Freddie because no one can. Yeah. yeah. And so, yeah, to your yeah. point, like if you're doing a Johnny Cash, it's the same thing. He had such a unique and distinct voice. You're like, I, I would never expect an actor to get close or like, or get it dead on. Like if they can get close yeah. or in the ballpark or if they're mimed, I don't mind. I'm like, yeah, that's fine. Yeah. As long as, as, long as they're not like, you know, polar opposite. <laughs> like if yeah. he's not doing falsetto, then you're fine. You're okay. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. I, I have a chip on my shoulder, not to make it about Bohemian Rhapsody again. I have a chip <laughs> on my shoulder about that Rami Malek performance just because I know Sasha Baron Cohen was originally supposed to play him in that movie. Yeah. That, that would have been good. Such mm. good passing. And like, yeah. if you hear his, if you hear the way he sings in Sweeney Todd, you can totally hear that he would have done his own singing as Freddie Mercury and been pretty, pretty dang good at it. Mm. so i yeah. yeah that one is is that's a frustrating movie in general for me i'm um, sure. just thinking about well, like what could have been with uh with yeah. with that sasha baron cohen performance and like obviously mm. he's such a committed performer too right yeah. like and and so like fearless <laughs> that True. i think he, he really would have been like the perfect embodiment of of that guy and like yeah i feel it's, like it's I hard I've heard that his sort of version in terms of the story and what he wanted to do with it would have been completely different as well. It would have been yeah. more akin of actually what we were talking about earlier of like exploring the struggles, exploring mm -hmm. all of that in a bit more detail, but, but there you go. But yeah, so, yeah. so, sorry, what, what line you think is a, a good example? Yeah. I, I hear yeah. that one cited a lot to be fair. Yeah. Yeah. That's probably the best like traditional, like 
formulaic biopic. Um, mm. Ray is up there as well, as far as those go, um, which they came out back to back years. So Ray was in 2004 oh. and uh, Walk the Line was 2005. And those, I think, are the, the sort of the pinnacle of that formula. Um, mm. And uh, but I do think that like uh, Walk the Line comes out, I think, in 2007 and just kind of annihilates that formula. <laughs> like it just kind of yeah. blows up that entire thing. So because we were mm. starting to get like a million of those movies after the success of Ray and, and Walk the Line and sure. a lot of people didn't see them. So um, I think Eight Mile is a really good one. Um, that's mm. sort of like it's sort of based off of Eminem's life in Detroit growing up. Yeah. Very autobiographical. He plays himself, but like a fictional version of himself named Rabbit. Um, mm. I think I think the other thing too is like hip hop is such a recent genre that we don't have a lot. It's basically Eight Mile and Straight Outta Compton, and that's it. Yeah. Um, Straight yeah. Outta Compton's a good one too. Um, it's a little long okay. for what it is. Um, but I think it's just an interesting say. Once again, like I said, there's almost no hip hop biopics. So it's it, I'm going to champion anything that brings that sort of genre to light because it's usually just like old timey rock and roll and R and B that gets this treatment. So, um, yeah, straight out of Compton is, is it's like fine, but it has really good performances. And I think that's what makes it, it's two and a half hours. So it's a lot. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's a lot, but it's, it is kind of like another really interesting sort of like I was talking about with rolling thunder review America on the brink, right? Like mm. NWA comes out, right at the tail end of the eighties into the nineties. And like, it's kind of the end of the yuppie era, you know, uh, like I said, the cocaine eighties and mm. into the sort of like prosperous nineties. But there's a lot of tumult that I think people gloss over at the beginning of the nineties, particularly in Los Angeles, uh, right. with the, the Rodney King beating and, and all that stuff. And just like the, you yeah. know, I think the Rodney King beating was sort of, it, it brought to national attention, sort of the way police were treating, people within the inner cities of Los Angeles for years. And it was yeah. just the first thing that made the rest of the country take notice. And mm. NWA was just there at the perfect time to be like, we've been telling you this. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's really interesting from that perspective of like how this group was so perfect for this particular moment in American history. Right. Yeah. And again, that makes sense to, to build an entire movie around that. Right. Mm-hmm. So that's something that's like a huge political issue. It's something people can understand and relate to and, um, and yeah, and then it, well, like you say, it gives a completely different genre a chance to to shine. Just thinking about it, actually, I think you're right. Yeah, the hip hop doesn't seem to have a lot of stuff in the the biopic yeah. genre. Not currently, anyway. No, not currently. I'd love to see like mm. a I'd love to see like a Tribe Called Quest one. I think um, there's also yeah. there's a TV show on Hulu in America right now called Wu Tang and American Story. Um, and that's right. about the that's about the Wu Tang Clan. So they're they're mm. they're getting there, but I think it's just like such a recent genre that we're just now starting to view the origins of it as history. Mm, yeah. No, that's fair enough. That's fair enough. Okay. So you've got a couple of really solid examples there. Um, yeah. Yeah. What, what sort of other ones spring to mind? And I mean, we talked a lot about music. Is there sort of others outside of that? that you um, think work? I'm a big fan of the aviator. Uh, Martin Scorsese. Ah, yes, of course. Love yeah. Aviator. Yeah. Um, solid movie. Yeah. Really solid movie. And as someone with OCD, mm. Uh, like a very like good portrait of what it's like to struggle with that disease. So right. um, <clears throat> I don't have a lot of the same struggles that, that, that uh, Hughes had obviously. Um, but it's like, it's really interesting to watch that movie, especially like the older I get and the more I learn about the diagnosis that I have, 
to be mm-hmm. like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm far away from that, but I'm not ever that far away from that, if that makes sense. Like, not to be, not, I'm not paranoid about it, but it's like, mm-hmm. oh, I get how he ended up there. You know, yeah, like, I, I, yeah. I can't not connect the dots. Like, I, I'm not particularly concerned about myself in that way, but it's like, mm-hmm. it's not, it's, it, it's not far from my mind sometimes where it's like, oh, yeah, I get yeah. it. Um, I, my, my particular mm. version of the disease does not have the sort of germaphobe thing that comes with a lot of diagnoses of it. But, right. um, other than that, I totally like, I can totally see, yeah. see where that is. And to that point, I think it's a very good performance of someone mm-hmm. struggling with that disease as well. Like it's, you know, it's, mm. it's very, um, I think compassionate. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, also like, and, and sweeping too. Like it's such a, you know, Howard Hughes lived a big, big life and innovated in a lot yeah. of ways for better and for worse. And the movie like doesn't always have his back, which is cool. Um, mm. Really bad Kate Blanchett performance. She's not good in it, but um, okay. other than that, everyone, everyone's really good. And she plays um, Catherine Hepburn in it or Audrey Hepburn. Um, I think, yeah, a famous actress. Cause he, d- he dated a lot of actresses. Yes. Um, so yeah. yeah, I do remember her playing somebody in that. I can't remember who, but um. Um, yeah, she plays Catherine Hepburn, and she's really bad. Oh, um, uh, okay. Yeah, I think the movie could have benefited from leaning a little bit. It's still a really good movie as far as, like, what he did in industry, but I think it kind of mm. kind of takes aside a little too much on the uh, way he treated women. <laughs> um, Do you know what? That's something, actually, I'm glad you brought that up. I, um, I was thinking, obviously, about this today, leading up to our conversation, and I do feel like in terms of the portrait of the central protagonist or or sometimes groups of people that these kinds of films portray. I feel like they're either warts and all brutally honest, Mm -hmm. or they can be a little bit glossy and kind of, you know, just kind of, ah, you know, yeah, they were, they were fine. Everything's good. And I feel like, yeah, it's, you tend to get one or the other when it comes to these types of movies. Yeah, for sure. And I think the warts and all is sort of like, sort of more honest yeah, um, yeah. That way, like that, they didn't, you know, just uh, uh, deal with it. Unless you're dealing with like a specific era, because like, mm. and I, I, I'm probably less qualified to speak on this uh, mm. than you are, being a, a citizen of the UK. But like, uh, darkest, <laughs> darkest hour with Gary Oldman, right? Like, that's a very okay. like pro Churchill, yes, movie. Yeah. But it also like deals with a time where like I think Churchill, at least from my perspective, handled what he because it's about the Dunkirk thing right Mm -hmm. it came out the same year Mm -hmm. as dunkirk i think it's a a, i think it is like a movie that's supposed to show his tenacity in the face of adversity i think that's perfect for like what that situation was and what happened in that situation but i know churchill has a much more complicated legacy than just that isolated incident (laughs) um right so but the movie is not an encompassing biopic about the man himself so it's not it doesn't really get into that yeah i said that's the thing isn't it yeah that's it does very much, I think, depend on the moment in that person's life that they're focusing on. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I, th- I think that's fair. Yeah, if you like, like Darkest Hour is a good example. Yeah, if you're focusing on one specific moment, fair enough. You don't have to go into the the nitty gritty necessarily. But right, I mean, like w- one that kind of leaped to my mind is as um, a kind of one that I actually really enjoyed. And I thought was quite a good Watson all story was the founder. The, oh yeah, um, mm-hmm. the, the Mike, McDonald's Michael- one. Yeah, with Michael Keaton playing yeah. Ray Kroc. And I was like, because I'm quite familiar with that story because it fascinates me. Yeah. Um, and so when I heard they were doing this movie, when I heard Michael Keaton was involved, I was like, 
okay, I don't think he's going to go for a glossy, like, no, he's fanfare like, kind of movie. He's just going to yeah. go for something interesting. And boy, does he come out with one. It's like, yeah. it's the movie you watch it and you go, this guy sucks. Yeah, like, he's an a-hole that entire movie. <laughs> like, he's just the worst. And I, But I really admired the movie for just taking that swing yeah. and just laying out kind of the truth. It's pretty accurate in terms of, like, what happened. Yeah, and I oh, really, yeah. I really he, admired it for that. He screwed those guys. Yeah, and the movie yeah. like makes the point of like being like, "Hey, that was not <laughs> like, yeah, he was not in the right." Yeah, absolutely. And again, yeah. I just admired it. I thought brave, yeah, very no, brave. That's a good one to bring up. That's a that's mm. a that's a pretty good movie too. I I really yeah it. yeah. I think I'm due a rewatch of that actually um, yeah. at some point. But yeah, fast absolutely fascinated me as well. It's like especially as well as a biopic that's about um about you know a business you think yeah. on paper that could be really boring but i thought that was a good example of somebody picking on a narrative which is within the mcdonald's story of like a guy who basically just wormed his way into this business and just ripped it out from underneath people yeah. that's a fascinating story and they just went for that and i was like yeah fair play fair play for, yeah. for choosing i mean that. i I feel like Scorsese is kind of the king of the biopic, right? Yeah. Like, you look at it, right? He's got uh, Raging Bull, um, which is, yeah, I, fair. I, I think, mm-hmm. one of the all-time greats. Wolf of Wall mm. Street is a biopic, technically. Um, I suppose it is, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Goodfellas is a biopic. Um, True. Yeah. Casino's a biopic. Uh, the Irishman's <laughs> a biopic. The Aviator's yeah. a biopic. If you mm-hmm. want to get technical about it, Last Temptation of Christ is a biopic. Uh, right, right. Uh, oh, I know he's got one other. Um, oh, shoot. Oh, Kundune about the Dalai Lama is a biopic. Um, oh. And yeah, I mean, all, by the way, all good movies. <laughs> mm. Mm. So I think that those are all really good. Uh, First Man is another one. That's, I uh, loved First Man. Isn't it great? It's so great because I... I <laughs> No secret to anyone. Um, I I fell in love with Ryan Gosling as performer in like mm-hmm. one specific year when I just saw a bunch of these movies and that was yeah. one of them that I was like, this guy's incredible. Yeah, he's so he's, good. Um, yeah, he's really good in that movie. And as a story, again, I thought Brave, like it went for mm-hmm. an interesting narrative. It could have, that could have been, and now we're flipping roles here because I'm trying to be careful with someone who's not from the States. Sure. Um, but it, it, I felt like that could have been an extremely like pro-America, mm-hmm. patriotic kind of, you know, we did it, we made it to the moon, aren't we the best kind yeah. of story? But they've shied away from that. And again, it was like Ryan Gosling's doing this. And didn't um, the guy behind Whiplash do that mm-hmm. movie yeah. as well? Yeah, so Damien again, Chazelle. I was like, Damien Chazelle, I thought, okay, these two, they're, they're not going to go for the obvious one here. And they didn't. They went for yeah. a, a fascinating story kind of about grief and guilt mm-hmm. and the insane amount of pressure that they were all under and just a really human story, I think, that gets lost in the very kind of grandiose tale of, like, yeah. man on the moon. You know, it's it, it tells the story of the man on the moon, which I thought, yeah. again, very brave, very interesting, and not the obvious choice for that story, I thought. Yeah, well, and it's a very personal story right extremely which is which is cool because like i feel like neil armstrong his reputation i don't know much about the origins of the space program i'm no authority by any 
by any stretch, but, mm. um, I, you know, I, I think that, that, uh, he, he was pretty guarded. And so to kind of humanize him in that way, right? Like we, we, mm. we look at him and this is the thing that I think biopics do as well is they kind of break down the myth of a person or they build up the myth of a person. Um, True. In 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 those ways. So like first man, like I think Neil Armstrong is more myth than man at this point, um, especially because he's not around anymore and he didn't do like a ton of interviews or press really at all. No. So not a lot was known about him. So this was like a really inter- that was a, like a really interesting way to kind of like get into who he was as a person and what you know, what drives someone to think they can go to space, especially to be like the f- first person to go yeah. to space like that's you know that's that's kind of an intense decision to make like mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. you know and and they they go through that like you know there's the 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 failed mission where the people die yeah in in the rocket and like he's really got to reckon with that like they spend i think a good chunk of the sec- second act with him like really having that weighing really heavily on him mm. and you know it's easy to sort of um look at that story as it's taught in school and be like, Oh yeah, we sent some people to the moon. But then you think about like what went into that and another mm-hmm. biopic in that same vein, hidden figures. Uh, yes. Yeah. Another great, really one. good. Yeah. Um, mm. You know, about these, these, these black women who helped basically crack the formula of how mm. to get to the moon. Um, mm. And you, that, that, that one, two punch of hidden figures and first man for the first mm. time in my life, made me realize, like, oh, it was really hard to do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's it. That's the thing, and I feel like that's something that a, another thing a good uh, biopic can do, right? Is it can get to the very human elements of these larger than life stories that we mm-hmm. hear so many times that they kind of lose all meaning. Yeah, and like you say, they just become like a brief footnote in history. We go, oh, that's cool, and we don't give it much more thought. Whereas it's like these stories come out, and then directors are smart enough to pick up on it and actors give these performances that make you sort of sit and go oh oh i never thought about it like that before yeah yeah that was that was an amazing feat of like human achievement right there yeah i mean um i i mean i can't not bring mm-hmm. up spielberg right like Schind- <laughs> schindler's list is about yes right and like yeah that is a movie that i think for a lot of people really brings the holocaust mm. into stark reality for them oh for and sure like, you know, you like you, you, yeah. You read about it growing up, and you're like, "Oh, that sounds horrible." But then you watch that movie, and you're like, "Oh no!" Yeah. You know, like not to be flippant yeah. about it, but that's a movie, especially mm. the way it ends. If you've seen the film, um, yeah, the 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 end credits sequence, um, yeah, is is really like really powerful, and that's a movie I've only seen once, and uh, same, it. it it still sticks with me. Like it's still, you know, mm-hmm. when I, when that movie enters my head, I can't get it out for a long time. Um, mm. And it's, you know, it's not a glamorous movie by any stretch of the imagination. And it's kind of a yeah. warts and all biopic. Like it does not portray yeah. Oscar Schindler as a hero for a lot of that movie. No. Um, <laughs> and it also brings into like, like it's, it's a very graphic recreation of what the people in these camps went through. And I yeah. know, like, there's maybe a certain sector of people who's like, I don't want to see that. And, like, mm. well, those people didn't want to go through it, man. <laughs> like, yeah, I- yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, you know, there's also sort of other stuff, I guess, kind of 12 Years a Slave, right, is another mm-hmm. one that's technically mm-hmm. a biopic that 
same thing. Yeah, it's dealing with really heavy subject matter. And yeah. like you said, some people might go, ah, that's not for me. You're like, yeah, but th that's the point of these stories is it's like they were horrible things that happened and they kind they need to be acknowledged for one and for another yeah. That's the point of these stories, right? Is it's it's showing you the human side of yeah. these things, and it gets you to sit and think about it. Yeah. Um, and that's another thing that this genre can do is it can really put you in the shoes of what other human beings have been through. Yeah. Did you see Black Klansman? Uh, I did. Yeah. That's yeah. A that's another fascinating one. Yeah, that's another really good one to like mm. think about and and just like. Oh yeah, that happened in like recent American history too. Like, but the, especially uh -huh. the kind of the one-two punch of Black Klansman and Judas and the Black Messiah, right? Um, and Selma, for that matter. Um, mm. That really, like, I think it was Selma mm. that I saw, and I was like, "Oh my god!" When this was happening, like, my parents were not just alive, mm. but well into their lives, like. Yeah, it's it's just so crazy to think about that, right? Like that fight for equality mm. happening so recently, like not just within my parents' lifetime, but as my parents were rapidly approaching the end of high school. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's it, yeah, it brings these things I think front and center and gives you usually like I say a person or a group of people to kind of guide you through it. And, and humanize you and, and humanize these stories. And like you said, the things that can easily be forgotten and easily pushed into the history textbooks that we kind of look at and can keep a distance from. But actually, mm -hmm. as you say, often it's not that much of a distance. <laughs> and it's, yeah. it's, quite, it's great that these things actually remind us of it and show us the, the very, again, the very human experiences of all of these stories. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, especially talking about like a prophetic one, like Social Network, right? Like that's a biopic. Uh, yeah, it's another one. Yeah, about true, very, sure. very recent history, mm -hmm. and about you know, it's you know, at the time it was like, uh, I don't know, is this guy really that much of a sociopath? And then like the the longer, <laughs> the longer he's been around, it's like, <laughs> oh no, they kind of nailed it, huh? <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's an interesting one to have a, a retrospective look on. <laughs> Yeah, it's just it, that one's real fascinating because of how recent that history is. Like, I mean, you know, mm -hmm. we're roughly the same age. We were in high school when that happened, and like, yeah, now we sort of see the the what that looks like brought to its like fullest fruition, and it's like, whoa, they really hit the nail on the head about where this was headed. And yeah. at the time, it felt kind of alarmist, and now it doesn't feel alarmist enough. It seems like, yeah, yeah, that's true. That's very true, and. Again, another warts and all one, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, very, very, very brutal and honest in terms of its depictions and and its its thoughts on the whole story, which yes, fascinating. I mean, it reminds me because wasn't it? Well, I say shortly after it was a good few years actually. They did um two Steve Jobs. Yeah, ones, they did the Ashton Kutcher one and the Michael Fassbender one. Yeah, and I heard like those two took two very different approaches again to that that whole narrative and story. Yeah, I didn't see the um. Ashton Kutcher one because it looked bad, but I loved <laughs> that Michael Fassbender one. It's really great. And mm. both Social Network and Steve Jobs written by Aaron Sorkin. There um, you go. So he he really saw where the puck was headed with that. And yeah, uh, it, you Does, know, it's 
He's known for not mincing his words, that guy. Yeah, yeah, he sure is. And I'm I'm documented as not being the hugest Sorkin fan, which is kind of a hot take, but uh I think I think Steve Jobs is his best script. I really, really mm. like that movie a lot. And it's set up of like kind of of like three eras of Apple. So like mm. Apple um but like the, I think it's like the origins and then before ni- the launch uh, in 1984 and then um again before the launch of the iPod. And mm. it really like re- talk about warts and all like mm. Fastbender does not play that guy as as a good dude. <laughs> um, no, you no. know, which is which is kind of interesting because you know he's pretty recently passed. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. By the time that movie had come out, so like it's really easy, I think, for a lot of people to kind of lionize very recently deceased people, and it's not until you know decades later, like we're now reckoning with like. Churchill, mm. for example, and his, yeah. his more complicated legacy than just like World War Two hero. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. I suppose when you when you think about it, something like Jobs, Social Network, and the founder, I think the thing something that they all seem to have in common is they're very honest about the kind of person that it mm-hmm. you know is. I don't want to say needed, but is attracted. I think to running huge billion dollar corporations yeah. um spoiler alert everyone they're not the nicest people <laughs> um and that's you but the thing is i'm somebody that's like i can look at it from a very analytical point of view and go well of course you know yeah. these are people that are borderline sociopathic or maybe have a touch of you know um ashburgers or something like that yeah. where like perhaps they struggle with emotional thinking because that's not the kind of decisions they have to make Mm-hmm. on a day-to-day you know they're making the decisions that will make insane n- amounts of money and i feel like yeah these biopics are very honest in depicting that and going yeah this is the kind of person that is required you could say i guess to yeah. run something like this what you think of that is ultimately up to you and i feel like these films usually leave that on the table right they just kind of like this is the kind of person that you've idolized or heard about do with that information what you will yeah. Um, yeah. And I think too, to get a little, I want to get a little more into that specifically from like an American point of view, because I think there's a recent mm. biopic that very much like, if you want to know about what's going on in America now, you should watch this movie. I think mm. um, it's called the eyes of Tammy Faye. And I don't know. I've heard of this. Yes. Yeah. So I, I, I don't think they had much of an international presence, but mm. uh, Tammy Faye Baker and her husband, Jim Baker, they were big deals here in America and they were mm. um, American evangelical. I think they were with the assemblies of God denomination of the Christian church. Right. Um, but they were, the, they were kind of the pioneering televangelists. So it was the Bakers yeah. and then a guy named Pat Robertson. Um, uh-huh. And Jim Baker is still alive. Tammy Faye has passed and Pat Robertson is also still alive. Um, right. And like in the seventies, eighties, they really came up and they were part of this thing called the moral majority. They were sort of the people who were on the crusade to get like the parental advisory sticker on um, music. They were part of the satanic panic, like anti dungeons and dragons type stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but they got in really well with a lot of big political powers that be at the time. Yeah. And they were able to kind of shape American politics from that moment kind of forward. Like you can, draw a direct line from the legacy of Tammy Faye and Jim Baker and Pat Robertson. So right now, (laughs) Um, Mm. uh, and you know, uh, that is, uh, 
it, it, it's a it's a biopic that I think is uniquely American, right? Like I think yes. that that um, we are sort of the only country that has that um, mm. it, 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 writ large that has those types of people influencing politics for decades. Um, And so it was really interesting to kind of see what led to that. Um, And Mm. especially after, you know, particularly the events of January 6th, 2021 (laughs) to Mm. kind of see how you could draw that, that straight line um, is, is really kind of fascinating, but also at the same time, and the movie came under fire for this, for kind of humanizing them a little bit. I don't think the movie's necessarily on their side, but um, mm-hmm. they portray them as good parents. And Jim Jim Baker Jr., I think is his name, or Jim Baker III, he's active on Twitter. And he talked about, like, he has a complicated relationship with the legacy of his parents because he knows what they did writ large within the country mm-hmm. and, like, the politics and, like, the specifically the politics of baby boomers that they helped influence but he remembers them as good loving parents as well. So like, where does that, you know, that's gotta be like a weird juxtaposition to have to live in. Definitely. Yeah. I think I heard, uh, is it Jessica Chastain mm-hmm. is the, yeah. is the main role. Yeah. Yeah. She, she I, won best actress for that performance as well. She did. That's yeah. right. Yeah. I heard her on a, um, an interview actually talking about the role and like why she sort of went for it. And, I think actually, yeah, it was apparently that side of the story that she was interested in was like the human side of 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 Tammy, and like it's sort of almost like regardless of what you think of all the politics, like yes, the film will deal with that and it will play that out on on the rest of the story. But the yeah. way she was playing the role and approaching it was from yeah, that very human side of like she was a mum and she was somebody that, for better or for worse, was from what the way way she puts it, was about love. And was, you know, sort of trying to do something like that. And whether or not you feel like that was misguided or naive or all these other things, again, the movie will present all of that information and that's up to you as the audience to kind of decide. But I thought it was just interesting hearing her point of view and how she sort of approached the role like that. And that's something I've always thought about with, with that is you know, the director clearly has a point of view that they're trying to tell. Mm -hmm. And as we've sort of said earlier, like actors are drawn to these roles because clearly they see something in it that they can do they can bring to it they can they can i think they must be approaching it from a almost like a different angle or like they've got to think about it differently i suppose yeah definitely and i think that that um we can bring it in for a landing here if you want um i think <laughs> that, that that leads into uh uh you know the the director in particular wanting to get across a certain message with the the type of biopic that they choose there's there's two biopics that i think are very good and very these are much more lighthearted than i think almost anything else we've been talking about um (laughs) okay uh, ed wood and dolomite is my name Mm -hmm. um and i guess to a certain extent the disaster artist um, yeah, <clears throat> mm-hmm. the, those are films about filmmaking, right? Yeah, um, and not just filmmaking, but very, very fringe filmmaking. And yeah, you know, Ed Wood is notoriously regarded as the worst director of all time. He made the worst <laughs> movie of all time, Plan Nine from Outer Space. And Tim Burton made this movie about Ed Wood, and it's this really like kind of heartfelt story about a man finding his, uh, uh, his, his struggling with and reckoning with his own sexual identity, um, 
but in, especially in the 1950s, um, but all was so feeling kind of like on the outskirts because of that. And mm. uh, also like becoming friends with Bella Lugosi, incredible Bella Lugosi performance by um, is it Jack Lemmon who plays him in that movie. I have no idea. I'll take your word for it. <laughs> Martin Landau. Martin Landau. Martin Landau okay. plays Bela Lugosi. He's amazing at it. Like it is worth watching that movie specifically for that performance. He's so mm. good in that movie. Um, Dolomite is my name. Similar thing, right? Like Rudy Ray Moore. Uh, I'm going to shamelessly plug this uh, <laughs> because I'm actually proud of this. I wrote a paper about Dolomite is my name and the making of the Dolomite movie. Um, So if you would like to read that, hit me up on social media. I will gladly send you the link because I'm very proud of the work that I did with that because it's not a super well-known era of filmmaking. So uh, Dolomite is this 1970s blaxploitation movie um, Mm. about uh, a pimp named Dolomite. Um, If you guys have seen Black Dynamite, um, Dolomite is kind of the blueprint for the film black dynamite um right and uh dolomite is my name is a biopic about them making dolomite it stars eddie murphy as rudy ray moore who wrote uh Mm. and starred in dolomite and uh once again the disaster artist to to a certain extent too you know the thing that these all three have in common is it's about it's about filmmakers who feel like they were kind of on the outskirts of society or Mm. on the fringes and use filmmaking to give themselves and their communities that they were in, that they didn't see represented in film a voice. Yeah. And, um, I don't really want to get into the, uh, you know, the, the, the James Franco of that all with the, the, the disaster artist, but, sure. um, <laughs> or I guess even the Johnny Depp of it all with that would, uh, <laughs> mm. and, but the, I think those three movies outside of, you know, whatever's going on with those those performers i think those three movies are really about making art with your friends no matter what and i really like that aspect like i got really uh there are moments of edward that make me really like kind of teary-eyed and there are definitely moments of dolomite of my name that make me really kind of teary-eyed despite mm. not really identifying with any of the people in the in the film or being belonging to the communities that are represented there but it just like it shows like how powerful making art can be no matter yeah. where you are like it can it can really get your voice heard no matter what you know and like yeah. i think you can draw a direct line to the sort of filmmaking of plan nine and dolomite and the room even like yeah i'm gonna say some positive stuff about the room (laughs) which is like a bunch of weirdos making whatever they wanted to make consequences Mm. and popular opinion be damned they made the movies that they wanted to make and i think that that opportunity is afforded to us in the modern era now more than ever with Mm. one how good our phone cameras have gotten two the internet and three, what you and I are doing right now, Harley, which is podcast. Um, <laughs> it's now, true. That is yeah. for better and for worse, because um, there's <laughs> a lot of really bad podcasts out there. <laughs> um, and, you know, it's there are certain people who you, you see on Twitter or, or any social media and you're like, I don't know if you need a voice. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but because of that sort of 
freedom to really kind of open up uh, the world at large to each other, I think it has by and large made people, I think if you talk to them one-on-one, a lot more like open and compassionate to each other, you know, like I, Mm. I think that for the most part, you know, like, yeah, whatever social media is not the best medium to do that stuff. And it's easy to get Mm. like kind of keyboard warrior about it. But I think by and large, like a net positive of the internet age has been that we've been able to take that sort of outsider ideal Mm. of Ed Wood and Dolomite is my name and the disaster artists and kind of apply that to each other. And like on a global scale, right? Like, yeah, you know, we, we're, we're in two different countries right now talking to each other. And like, (laughs) that wouldn't have been that viable 20 years ago. Yeah. That's so true. I mean, I guess it's, I'd class that as kind of like an underdog story yeah. kind of biopic, which as you say, especially when you channel that into a, a creative story, like the ones you've just mentioned as an example. Yeah. It's, it's almost like a, and I sort of look back at, I guess, our history. And I mean, I say mm-hmm. our as two podcasters talking like you're right. Yeah. You can look back on those stories and go, yeah, to be fair, without these kind of fringe guys making these movies or making whatever it is they were making and and the story behind that and the struggle. Yeah. You think, would we be in this place now? Would this sort of be more accepted Would what's the knock on effect? I think, yeah, Mm -hmm. I think that's a beautiful way of looking at it. And that's another, I guess, way that those, these kinds of movies and stories can affect us and move us and, and just remind us of where we've come from. Yeah, definitely. And I think that, you know, um, my favorite of those three, by the way, is Dolomite is my name. I really okay. connected to that movie for some reason. I don't know why. Um, I just did. It's and it's it's such a fascinating portrait of like the black exploitation movement, which we've lost a lot of. There's a really great mm. podcast that Amazon put out. Um, speaking of which, the Bezos biopic is going to be off the wall. I feel like. Um, <laughs> yeah, I wonder <laughs> is that going to be a warts and all or a glossy one? I really yeah. think warts and all. If yeah. it's going to be. A- if it's going to be anything like the the founder or social network or jobs, you know, and yeah, we're yeah. in for a wild ride. <laughs> yeah. Oh, there's something about Dolomite is the name of the podcast. Um, oh, okay. And it is an excellent uh, resource about the history of black exploitation movies and the history of the sort of comedy that Rudy Ray Moore did, which is like a, it's a very specific type of like character play portraying a character. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and telling stories and it's it's it was picked up by a lot of the um the the new york uh uh like homeless population and the pimps in new york in the 40s and 50s and 60s um right. and like obviously like that's not a particularly well documented or known era of history so mm. we don't have a lot of it and so to have kind of one area where all that's kind of compiled into a pretty concise resource is really good um cool. like they yeah they there's um uh there's a really great um and it takes like different aspects of it in each episode as well so it has like um so it takes black exploitation's legacy funk and soul music um strong black women kung fu movies and 1970s fashion and like it's five episodes and each episode is dedicated to one of those five things um yep and and just like fascinating. it's it's so interesting. Do, there's something about Dolomite, it's, and it's a fantastic companion piece to Dolomite is my name. Wow. Okay. Well, I'll make sure I find some links for that in the show notes, and I'll, I'll be checking that out. It sounds really interesting. Yep. Yeah, it's a good one, and it, it mm-hmm. definitely 
it's interesting, like we were talking about to bring it kind of full circle, that Dolomite mm-hmm. happens and it's this fringe art thing, and then we make this fringe art thing about this fringe art thing, right? So yeah, it's, yeah. it's like the podcast is it's a pretty fringy, like I know they feel ubiquitous, but they're not, right? Like, mm. especially out, people above a certain age have no idea what a podcast is. And so... It's true. It's true. <laughs> I, I, have that, I have that conversation frequently. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, particularly with parents a lot of the time. Yeah. It's so like, it's a radio show? It's yeah. like, uh, no, kind of, not really. Yeah, yep, <laughs> yep. <laughs> that's the most relatable thing about being a podcaster, I think. But uh, to yeah. kind of take that medium that's very fringy, which is podcasting, and talk about mm-hmm. the sort of fringe filmmaking movement is right. really interesting to kind of have that that sort of uh, synergy between these like things that you can draw a direct line to. And I think that's what... Mm. biopics ultimately at the end of the day do is they help us understand our history a little bit better um yeah even even if it's not as accurate it can help us it can help us understand those situations and then how we can apply to them apply them to our own lives and learn from them uh Mm. i think even personally right like the, the whole ethos behind Ed Wood, Dolomite is my name, and the disaster artists are like, make art and don't care about what anyone has to say about it. Make the things you want to see, make the things you want to do. And like, mm. if it catches an audience, that means that you are being true to yourself, you know? Mm. That's such a good point. And I think that's a really lovely place, like you say, to bring it in for a landing because we've gone all over the place with this discussion, yeah. but I love it. I absolutely love it. Um, and I think that's such a positive note. And that's very much in the ethos of this podcast funny enough is yeah yeah you know i've said it many times before um i've got some episodes that come out recently that dive a little bit more into the being creative in Mm -hmm. different genres um and that was kind of the thing that all of my guests were bringing out was like yeah just go and make the thing like go for it um and yeah you're right there are plenty of biopics out there that ultimately that's the story right even the ones that deal with the more successful people like your elvis for example you know to bring it back to what we were talking about at the start, it's like at one time or another, that was on the fringe. That was new. That was somebody just taking a thing that they love doing and just putting it out there. Yeah. And, and, you know, know, to speaking from my personal experience, like, yeah, definitely you want to cultivate an audience as far as like being present on social media and promoting your stuff, but like, do not Mm. make growing and like just numbers for your thing. The end all be all because you're one going to end up miserable and yep. two, you're gonna lose the love of why you got into it in the first place. Like big time. Make yeah. the thing, and if the thing is true, it will find an audience. It will. And it may not be, you know, an Elvis-sized audience, but <laughs> who has that? You know, like yeah. it's like one percent of one percent of people in history have found success it like at, at, on that large of a scale. So like True. I think, you know, I think that's maybe one of the detriments to bio- biopics is like they might mm. skew our definition of what success is or could be for, yeah. you know, the the mm. everyday person. Because like, you know, once again, you and I are both podcasters. If we look at like mm. even the most popular, right, like uh, we'll use Kevin Smith as an example, right? Like, yeah, one of the most successful podcasters of all time. Well, he also mm. had a built in audience from like 20 years of filmmaking and, uh, exactly. you know, it, it, it's just Didn't a way yeah. different type of, of podcast than, than exactly. what we're it's, doing here. It's apples and oranges. That's yeah. so true. Yeah. And, and to your point, I guess, when you think about it, um, and obviously from what you've told me, it, it's depicted in like the story of Elvis as an example, often, or often stories that deal with people with, that have like 
insane levels of fame and recognition it's not all it's cracked up to be you know um because to come back to what you said earlier like we're talking about the beatles stuff like that who among us as human beings is designed to cope with that level of 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 fame like just just think about it for a minute you know if you're somebody doing something you're creating you're getting involved in that process and you're making stuff you're putting it out there yeah do you honestly want it on the world stage do you want millions of people all of a sudden just on you about it no that's going to be overwhelming yeah you know to say the least so yeah i think you're right i think like some of the central messages a lot of these stories tell us is like careful what you wish for you know but ultimately just do it for you and and have fun with it yeah and and yeah that's definitely something that happens in elvis particularly with the 68 comeback special like um Mm. if you want really great footage of the real guy elvis watch the first half of the 68 comeback special it gets a little wonky towards the end um but Mm. there's an acoustic set that happens in the 68 comeback special and if you have ever wanted to understand what the big deal about elvis is go watch the acoustic set of the 68 comeback special because it's incredible like you really understand how actually talented the guy was. And within the framework of the film, it's set up as like a middle finger to Tom Parker and like Mm. him kind of like taking his story back for the first time in his career. And it ultimately ends up being like the only time he gets to do that. So it's this like brief reprieve from the abuses of Colonel Tom Parker within the, the structure of the film. But it like, in that moment, he gets to do the music that he grew up loving, like all these like old black blues and gospel songs. Yeah. Yeah. That's beautiful, man. That's absolutely beautiful. I love it. Well, MJ, thank you so much for, for coming on and just, yeah. yeah, talking about this. I've really, really enjoyed this. Uh, it's, it's always nice chatting to you, to be honest. You, I think this is your third time yep. on the podcast. So, yeah. Always great to see you. And I guess to take us home, where can the good people find you and all of your creative projects? Yeah, um, so you can find, I have two podcasts. I have uh, Let's Jaws for a Minute, which is, uh, well, it was a, um, it it is still going on, but it is in a different format now. Um, So previously, uh, my co-host Sarah and I uh, watched one minute or thereabouts of the film Jaws and discussed it. Harley was on there twice, I believe. Um, Mm -hmm. Yep. And he, 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 uh, contributed a wonderful moment to our final episode episode 80 um and yeah so that's what we were doing with that show we're on a brief hiatus right now but we will be back and we will be talking about uh going forward we're going to be talking about two things one each one of the jaws sequels not minute by minute they're just each going to get their own episode dedicated to them um Mm -hmm. which i still have not seen jaws the revenge uh, oh, you're in for point. a treat. So, um, <laughs> yeah, and I actually, I hadn't even seen two or three until like January of 2022. Wow. Um, yeah. So, uh, and now I own them on Blu-ray because it looks like part of my hobby now is just talking about Jaws. So I think, <laughs> I, I think over the course of my podcast career, I'm going to have to revisit those movies for better and for worse. Um, I think so. Yeah. So I did, I did crack and, bra- and buy the, the Blu-ray set that has all three of them, uh, <laughs> In it. love it yeah i put it off for as long as possible as a jaws yeah. fan but push came mm-hmm. to shove um with you that the one but, blu-ray that's out there of jaws three yeah yeah, yeah. Um, brilliant and it's all three of them in the same thing too oh like, that's fantastic yeah. 
Yeah, that's the only way you can get them on Blu-ray, by the way. You cannot buy them individually on Blu-ray. You have to buy all three of them. And the, it's dirt cheap. It was like 12 bucks for all three of them. <laughs> $4 a disc. Uh, Incredible. Yeah. Uh, so we're going to be talking about those coming up. And then after that, we will be talking about um, Steven Spielberg's filmography from Duel up through Hook. Um, that will be Amazing. the official season two of um, uh, Let's Jaws for a Minute. Uh, the other podcast is a much more conventional film and media pop culture podcast. It's called Real Perspective, R-E-E-L uh, Perspective. And that is just like a current release, movies and TV shows. So um, I'm not sure when this is going up, Harley. Uh, if this is your next episode, that's going August, up. I think. August. Okay. So yeah. around August, we'll be talking about the new Predator movie called Prey. Oh, um, cool. Yeah. So that's 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 what we have on the docket for the beginning of August. I think around that time we'll also be doing because not a lot's coming out around that time. Mm. Um, I <laughs> think we'll also be talking about like some of the 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 superhero stuff we didn't do episodes on. So like Batman, oh, yeah. Spider-Man yeah. three or whatever, the new Spider-Man three and then like Doctor Strange are going to be out this summer yeah. as well. Because we never did episodes on those things, mainly because we we're kind of burnt out on the superhero stuff. <laughs> and Fair so, um, so yeah, we're doing like just like cape people catch up uh episodes um <laughs> later on but you can find all that on uh twitter is probably the most active social media i'm on it's at mj smith 891 it's currently private right now so you'll you might have to request me or whatever but um in there you will find a link tree uh in my bio that has all the places you can find both shows brilliant i love that i'll make sure i put uh, links to all of that in the show notes all that's left to say is just thanks for coming on man yeah, thank you, Harley. And there we have it. A massive thank you to MJ for coming back onto the podcast and sharing this truly fascinating and diverse topic here with us at Fundamentals. I hope you guys listening really enjoyed that episode. Make sure you go and check out both of MJ's podcasts, Real Perspective and Let's Jaws for a minute. They are absolutely wonderful listens. And as MJ said, I was lucky enough to go on to Let's Jaws for a minute twice and provided a truly unique contribution to their final episode in the form of a parody song. So uh, there's a whole saga behind it, but basically go back and listen to Let's Jaws for a minute. When you get to my episodes, you'll understand how I ended up in that situation. And the end result can be found in their final episode, episode 80. So make sure you go and check it out, not just for that nonsense, but just because it truly is a wonderful podcast breaking down a previous topic of this podcast alongside a previous guest of this podcast sarah buttery so well worth a listen if you enjoy this episode you enjoy this podcast i think you'll get an absolute kick out of let's jaws for a minute and real perspective is a lot of fun as well i've had a great time listening to that recently so make sure you go and check those out all of which will be linked in the show notes for you of this episode if you are enjoying the podcast and you want to support me there are a couple of ways of doing that it's really straightforward. The best way is just to tell people. Word of mouth, social media, all that good stuff goes a long way. You can also leave me a lovely five-star review on your favorite podcatcher. If you do, make sure you let me know so I can give you a massive thank you on this very podcast. It really is the least that I can do. There are links in the show notes for where you can find me to let me know that you've done that. Any and all five-star reviews on any platform just again goes a massive way to helping this podcast so if you do that thank you and let me know and finally if you want to go and throw something into the pot for this very podcast 
Then there are two public links for all the merchandise and there's also a coffee donation page. So again, anything you can give, anything you want to throw in to support me would be greatly appreciated. I will, of course, be thanked on this show. That just about does it from me. I'll be back again next week with a brand new guest on a brand new topic. It's one that was absolutely amazing to record. The guest in question is probably the most dynamic guest I've ever had on the show with a topic that truly blew my mind and I'm sure it will do the same for you. So make sure that you're subscribed and following whatever it is you have to do on your favorite podcatcher so that you don't miss out. So until then, take care and I will see you all next week. Yeah.